Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. Each week, we navigate the most important changes that affect pharmacotherapy. Plus, you can even earn pharmacy and medicine CE credit. We know you're busy, so let us bring the learning to you. Click on Claim CE Credit in the show notes below. Now let's welcome our host, Jeff Wall, as he discusses this week's clinical practice game changer. Hello and welcome again to another episode of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I'm your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. How you doing? I uh, hope uh, your week is going okay. Hope wherever you are, you're keeping safe and not being too busy, though I know for most uh, healthcare professionals listening to my voice, that's probably not a reality. So thank you for listening. Welcome if you've never listened before. And if you are a regular listener, thanks for keeping listening. So today we're going to talk about something a little different. There's no big paper, no big guideline or anything, but I thought talking about something that I see in the hospital hospital several times a year. And certainly, I think something that many pharmacists, and I think even a lot of providers is not high on their radar, and that is pseudogout. So we're going to talk about pseudogout today, and its presentation, and how it differs from gout, and its treatment, and all that sort of stuff. Again, not because there's a big guideline change or anything. In fact, this is probably uh, the redheaded stepchild of rheumatology, in that it doesn't get a lot of love. There's not a whole lot of studies out there that look at how you treat it. It's widely thought to be vastly underdiagnosed. And so, you know, maybe that's the reason why it's a good idea to go through. And the reason this really kind of kicked off for me is I actually had a case of pseudogout. And and as I say, I have, you know, somewhere around four to six of these a year, it seems like, where we have a patient who is in the hospital for, you know, some acute uh, illness, pneumonia, heart failure, exacerbation, COPD exacerbation, and it's just in the hospital and basically immobile for a few days. And then what happens is, is one day we come in and they say, yeah, wow, my elbow really hurts out of nowhere, or my knee really hurts out of nowhere, or, you know, my ankle really hurts out of nowhere. And we'll, we'll take a look as a team and it'll look, you know, the joint will look swollen and red and warm to the touch and all that. And of course, you know, you have to think about the infection and all that other stuff. But what we found more often than not is that it's almost certainly a pseudogout. And if we treat the pseudogout, it rapidly improves. And again, it's just something that certainly pops up at us every so often. So I thought it might be reasonable to go through. So first up, the gods of rheumatology would slap my wrist if I didn't say that we're really not supposed to use the term pseudogout anymore. Actually, in 2011, uh, the European League Against Rheumatism recommended a more consistent naming pattern. Pseudogout was kind of this umbrella term that kind of fell under a whole bunch of other different terms. And since the primary pathophysiology with pseudogout has to do with calcium pyrophosphate crystals and not monosodium urate crystals, they said maybe that we should really term this disease, you know, uh, calcium pyrophosphate deposition disease, which of course is a mouthful. So now we just say CPPD. So I will probably use these terms interchangeably as we talk today, just because I'm an old man and have said pseudogout for 30 years, but we really should be saying CPPD as the umbrella term to refer to all occurrences that of what we used to call pseudogout, which is this kind of acute arthropathy that occurs uh, with the deposition of these crystals. It is important to note though, and, and I think one of the reasons why I thought this was an important talk is that CPPD is an outpatient disease too. I mean, I see it acutely as an inpatient, but again, it's widely recognized that CPPD disease is probably underdiagnosed in the outpatient arena, especially in older patients, and age is actually the number one risk factor, which is something we're going to be talking about. So 
What is CPPD? As I mentioned before, it's characterized by the deposition of these calcium pyrophosphate crystals. And that's obviously the big difference between it and traditional gout, which is a disease of, of serum urate. These CPP crystals, though, act pretty much like uric acid crystals in that they deposit in the articular hyaline and fibro cartilage. Unfortunately, we don't know nearly as much about the pathogenesis, about why it occurs. It's not clearly as defined as gout is. We know that the first step is just overproduction of these crystals. That stands to reason. It's the same in gout. Overproduction of monosodium urate or, or underexcretion of them leads to these deposition of crystals and the inflammatory reaction that occurs. It's the same thing with CPBD, that you're going to get these overproduction of these pyrophosphate crystals, and then they basically get deposited in the joint cartilage. Now, interestingly, it's difficult to look at this radiographically because many people, especially as they get older, develop a condition called chrondocalcinosis, which is just the radiographic findings. And the problem is, is that can happen in a lot of people as they get older, this kind of deposition of, of, of calcium crystals into the joint, but it doesn't tend to lead to the acute inflammation and, and acute arthropathy that you're going to see with pseudogout or CPPD. So that, again, I think that's one of the reasons why the European League Against Rheumatism wanted something a little more you know, concrete and say, okay, this is just going to be the one term that we're dealing with, basically. So, so the epidemiology and risk factors, again, age is absolutely the number one risk factor. And in fact, there's a strong association with advancing age. And as I said, you know, this prevalence of chondrocalcinosis depends on the joint image. But, you know, routine studies done in, in, in the 1990s and 2000s suggest that about 8% of patients over the age of 50 will have this radiographic finding when their joints are, are x-rayed or, or other imaging is done. And that may go up to 44% of patients over the age of 80. So, you know, that, of course, makes the diagnosis much more difficult because you can't just do a chest x-ray, chest x-ray just do a joint x-ray and take a look and go, hey, you know, they, you know, this is it and you have pain, that absolutely must be it. So radiographically, we may be able to find this chondrocalcinosis, but that does not mean necessarily the patient's going to develop CPPD disease, much in the same way that many patients may have hyperuricemia, but only a small percentage of them actually go on to develop clinical gout. So uh, how do you diagnose it? As just as in gout, a definitive diagnosis usually requires uh, tapping the joint that is inflamed and looking for the calcium pyrophosphate crystals on synovial fluid analysis. Now, that's obviously the gold standard as anyone who practices in, especially in an emergency department or even on an acute medicine department will know, we usually don't do that, especially because some of these joints that are affected by CPPD are hard to tap. It's going to be difficult to tap an ankle. You know, a knee isn't so bad. Maybe even an elbow isn't so bad, but some of the smaller joints are just going to be difficult to tap and, and draw fluid and take a look at it. So, so keep that in mind. So that's the gold standard, but it's not often clinically done and imaging doesn't help us uh, suss the diagnosis as well. Again, it's like so many things in medicine, it becomes kind of a clinical diagnosis. Other risk factors for CPBD include electrolyte abnormalities. And this may be one of the reasons why we tend to see it acutely in, in the hospital. So people have hypomagnesemia, hypophosphatemia tend to be at higher risk for CPPD, especially acutely. Patients who have hyperparathyroidism, hemochromatosis, and then it's often a joint that happens to be already affected with OA. So 
if someone has osteoarthritis of the knee or the shoulder, they may be more likely to develop that the CPPD crystal development in that joint and develop acute disease with it. And as I said before, there's been several retrospective studies that have suggested just acute illness combined with bed rest, you know, not getting up and moving joints may trigger an acute attack. And that's in my experience. And I think most of the, the inpatient physicians and, and pharmacists I know, that's where we've seen most of pseudo-gout attacks as someone is in the hospital for some completely unrelated reason. They have no history of gout or any other crystal arthropathy. And all of a sudden they develop a hot joint that looks for all the world like, like an acute gouty arthritis attack. So presentation of, of pseudo-gout is, again, this kind of acute arthropathy that occurs. It's usually monoarthritis. And again, much unlike gout, which as we all know, tends to affect, you know, the toes, especially the big toe, the most common joints affected are larger joints, including the knee and wrist and sometimes the elbow. But just like a gout, the attacks can be severe and cause very painful swelling, just like an acute gout arthritis. They say that, you know, acute uh, crystalline arthropathy is one of the most painful things that a patient can endure, and they can be quite painful. Attacks in patients who have chronic CPBD can last as long as 10 days, but unlike typical attacks can often linger for weeks after. So, you know, most people have an acute gouty arthritis, you know, attack of the toe or, or the ankle or something. Within a couple of weeks, it's, it usually goes away and they feel better. These symptoms, they can have residual symptoms for, for quite a long time. Just like gout, CPPD can cause arthritis, sometimes polyarthritis, and sometimes even migratory uh, acute arthritis as well, which of course makes the diagnosis much more tricky because, you know, if someone doesn't have monoarthritis, I think most physicians tend to kind of anchor on if it's monoarthritis, it tends to be, you know, gout or OA, where if it's polyarthritis, it tends to be more of an inflammatory arthritis and stuff like that. Also confusing the factors, in some cases, you can get concomitant fevers. And just like in other types of acute arthropathies that are inflammatory, uh, if you do labs on these patients, you can see, you know, elevated ESR, elevated C-reactive protein, which of course kind of kind of muddies the waters as, as well. Unlike gout, CPVD can also occur in the axial skeleton, which is interesting. And so that's rare, but it can occur. And you, just, you don't tend to see gouty arthritis occur in, in the spine anywhere, but that actually can occur. And acute attacks can present just like, you know, acute axial arthropathy with, you know, severe neck pain, neck rigidity, fever. And as you might imagine with those types of symptoms could be diagnosed as a wide variety of things such as meningitis, polymyalgia, rheumatica, et cetera, et cetera. One study did take a look at overall risk factors that may make you think about pseudogout in a patient. And as we said, the actually the number one is actually hyperparathyroidism, uh, but osteoarthritis, hypomagnesemia, calcium supplementation actually had a low OR for CPPD, chronic kidney disease, and then uh, just acute illness with bed rest, as, as I said before. So, so just like gout, you can develop a chronic deposition disease. So just like we say, you know, in patients who have gout, if they have repeated gouty arthritis attack, we have the intercritical period in between gouty arthritis where the patient may not be having acute symptoms, but the damage to their joints can be occurring, and that can certainly occur. So, you know, and, and as I said, there's some evidence to suggest that, that we probably underdiagnose that. We don't tend to get that, especially because the clinical phenotype tends to resemble osteoarthritis, as I, as I mentioned before. And I think the clinician, especially when they're, when if the patient does not have a history of OA and suddenly starts developing these kind of monoarthritic things and these things, I think probably should keep, you know, CPVD in the back of their head, basically. 
So we're talking about pseudogout or again, CPPD, uh, uh, calcium pyrophosphate deposition disease and how to treat it. Again, no big reason why to go through this. I just think it's an interesting thing and a nice catch up for, for clinicians out there. So we've talked about diagnosis. We've talked about pathophysiology and risk factors. Now, you know, being a pharmacist, I'm interested in the treatment of it. And the good news is that even though we don't have high level randomized control trials to support this, because again, we don't have good high level randomized control trials to support CPPD period, just because just they haven't been done. Uh, small studies and I think just general clinical experience suggests that acute arthritis due to CPPD, because it has the same mechanisms as gout, is treated pretty much the same way as gout is. So our three gold standard treatments, of course, are colchicine, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, and either intraarticular corticosteroids or systemic corticosteroids. And so just like in gout, the selection of which one of those is going to depend less on what the patient, you think that patient has CPPD and more of other risk factors or other uh, characteristics or morbidities that the patient may have that make you, may make you select one over another. Again, there are no randomized controlled trials that help us with guidance on treatment. So basically, we, we kind of fall back to the treatment of gout. So in my world, if I've got somebody who, you know, again, has an acute gouty arthritis or pseudogout arthritis attack, how I approach it is, you know, well, I've got these three choices, which one should I pick? I do, do tend still to use a lot of non-steroidals, um, and I think they work really good for CPBD acute arthritis. Like obviously you don't want to use acute non-steroidals in patients who have a, a recent history of peptic ulcer disease and patients with acute or chronic kidney disease. And I try to avoid them if, if I can in patients who are on blood thinners. So, I mean, if they're on anticoagulants such as DOAX or, or warfarin, I try to avoid using them as well. You have probably heard, at least in the world of gout, that indomethacin is kind of the treatment of choice. Remember that that's probably nonsense that, you know, there is no evidence suggesting that that indomethacin is, is any better than any non-steroidal at, at treating gout or CPPD. And I think you can pick any other one. I'm not a big fan of indomethacin because it's relatively COX-1 specific. And so I think it, you do tend to get more gastropathy and probably a more acute kidney injury with indomethacin than you do with, say, naproxen or ibuprofen. And I think any of them are reasonable um, along those lines. So I, you know, as long as the patient doesn't have any of those factors, nonsterols is usually my go-to. If they have some of those factors, then colchicine may be a, a reasonable option. Uh, again, we have no evidence to really guide us on how to dose colchicine and CPPD. So we tend to dose it as we would in gout. And as we know, the, you know, the one recent randomized control trial that was done basically suggested, you know, taking 1.2 milligrams of colchicine. And then if the pain persists in an hour, taking another 0.6 milligrams, and that works pretty good. I think it's reasonable to use colchicine in patients who might have a recent history of peptic ulcer disease, or again, who are on anticoagulants. I would probably avoid using colchicine in patients with bad renal problems, just because again, it's cleared renally. I would probably try to avoid colchicine, perhaps in patients who are on statins. Remember that the other big side effect of colchicine is acute myotoxicity. And there's some evidence that the colchicine potentiates that or, and statins potentiate that. So perhaps I might be a little shy of using a colchicine in somebody who's, who's on a statin, but I, that's not an absolute contraindication. And I have done that in the past for gout. And I don't see any reason why you couldn't use it for CPPD along the same line. So, so colchicine is kind of my fallback if they have a history of, of peptic ulcer disease or on anticoagulants, like in gout in a CPPD disease, I, it's been my experience, it tends to be more effective in patients the sooner you use it. And then of course, you know, uh, corticosteroids are kind of the last drug that I would use in patients who basically I can't use non 
on steroidals or colchicine for all the you know reasons we just said. So if I had a patient who just had some of these things and I just felt like I couldn't use either either colchicine or non-steroidals, then corticosteroids seem to work. Again, if you happen to have a large joint, uh, the knee, um, maybe even the elbow, you could probably try interarticular a corticosteroid injection. But if it's a smaller joint or a polyarticular flare, then you're probably stuck using systemic prednisone, for example. And usually a one to two week treatment course would plenty to treat it. And then if, if they have any residual symptoms that don't go away, I probably wouldn't continue corticosteroids for that for that length of period. I would probably, you know, follow up with them. And if they continue to have that, maybe even refer them to rheumatology at that point. And then, you know, just like acute disease, as I said, in the outpatient world, a chronic calcium pyrophosphate deposition, which can lead to joint destruction and all the things we've just talked about, uh, can occur and is probably underdiagnosed. Well, how do we treat this? Well, because we don't really have any good ways to decrease the formation of these calcium pyrophosphate crystals like we do with uric acid and, and with drugs like uh, allopurinol, we're really kind of at an impasse. And as I've said several times, there are no well-done evidence-based studies to show what we can do to lower CPP levels. There's no real way to measure CPP levels like we do uh, serum urate. So it becomes very complex on how to do that. Some have tried long-term suppressive colchicine, and I think that would probably be the reasonable first thing to do as long as the patient's renal function is okay and they aren't on a lot of, of interacting medications. I think that would be reasonable. Uh, some have tried hydroxychloroquine. <laughs> Remember that hydroxychloroquine did have a life before COVID, and, and there's been some small reports suggesting that might help. Some have tried in kind of refractory cases, anakinra, which is an IL-1 receptor antagonist, but very expensive because it's a biologic and there's not a whole lot of data. There was a lot of hope for methotrexate, and a small randomized study was recently completed that looked at methotrexate for chronic or recurrent CPPD arthritis, but unfortunately found that it didn't work. So there was a lot of hope that methotrexate might be the, the answer here uh, as it is an RA, but unfortunately it did not seem to work. So basically, I think, you know, if you had somebody who had chronic uh, CPPD disease, you could try lotus colchicine. After that, it's probably uh, time to, to, to get rheumatology involved and see what, what you can do there. So, so again, you know, kind of wrapping up, you know, uh, pseudogout or CPPD, uh, 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 probably an underrecognized uh, disease that can occur in, in especially as patient, patients age, and especially if they have electrolyte abnormalities. And in my world, certainly in patients who just have an acute illness who aren't able to get up and move around very much, we probably underdiagnose it. But fortunately, it seems that the treatments that we use for gout, even though we don't have high-level randomized controlled trials to support this, seem to work for pseudogout or CPPT attacks. And I think, you know, your approach to treating an acute gouty arthritis would be the same in, in someone who had uh, acute arthritis due to CPPD. And then for chronic treatment, you know, other than low-dose colchicine, we just don't got much, unfortunately, because as I said, not a, a well-studied entity, even though it's relative, it's probably far more common than we think it is. So, so that's it for this week of uh, Game Changers. Hope you found this interesting and a little bit of a departure from, hey, here's this new study. Hey, here's these new guidelines. Uh, again, thank you for listening. Thanks a lot. We will see you next week. And remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Take care. Thank you for listening in. Claim your CE credit by clicking on the link in the show notes below and check out CE Impact's other education at ceimpact.com. We curate the most important information in pharmacy and medicine and then deliver it to you. Join today and connect your learning to practice.